Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Thank you for agreeing to be part of my experiment. It's very difficult to get research subjects in my field. Uh, I'm still not 100% clear about what this field is. Well, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> I don't really like to say it. I think you have to. Okay, well, um, I'm looking at wh- what happens if people, you know, um, uh, if if people make sexy time. If people make sexy time. People do make sexy time. Right now, there are millions of people all over the world making sexy time. <laughs> they don't. That is crazy talk. <laughs> Why? Have you heard something? Uh, I don't have to hear something. I mean, how do you think babies are made? Oh, I know that. The woman has a shrimp cocktail and four glasses of Chardonnay. My mother explained the whole thing to me. She lived through it. Look, <laughs> you seem nice, but I think you're ill-equipped to conduct sex research. What's that supposed to mean? I have binoculars, a stopwatch, and a bucket of cold water. What else is there? Uh, everything. Maybe I should listen to this show about a famous researcher whose work spanned decades and created controversies. And now the man who made Norman Mailer stop touching himself, Colin McEnroe. I wouldn't say I did that. I got him to cut back quite a bit. We had some very serious conversations about that. Uh, and, and I do think I, I made an impact anyway. Uh, we're going to talk today about Wilhelm Reich. Wilhelm Reich is somebody that um, you know about if you've studied the history of, uh, of psychoanalysis, um, uh, the stories of the early disciples of Freud. He's also uh, this man who had this tremendous impact. He crossed paths with just about every major thinker of the 20th century, uh, from uh, Bronislaw Malinowski to Albert Einstein. Uh, his work, or at least parts of his work, uh, attracted the excitement of people like J.D. Salinger, Saul Bellow. In fact, yes, Norman Mailer. Uh, musicians write songs about him. There's a Patti Smith song about him and his son. Uh, you'll hear later um, a Kate Bush song uh, about one of his uh, inventions. Um, he's somebody who's commemorated in all kinds of different ways, but he also was one of the most persecuted men, men of the 20th century. Uh, he is, uh, I don't know if he's unique, but he's unusual at least in having had uh, his uh, work, his books and his other work burned in Nazi Germany from which he fled. Uh, and then uh, after fleeing to America, later had his books and work burned in America. Uh, I'm not sure how many people can claim that dubious distinction. So uh, he also has a number of, of supporters, people who feel as though there are parts of his work that have been lost in the shuffle of controversy. Uh, and we have two of them here today. Uh, Kevin Hinchy is here. He's co-director of the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust and operates the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Rangeland. Maine, up by those beautiful lakes. Uh, He's also a screenwriter who is currently working on a documentary uh, about Wilhelm Reich. Uh, We'll tell you a little bit, too, about how he's uh, seeking funding. Uh, There's an Indiegogo campaign right now. We'll we'll tell you about that later on. Uh, Also joining us, James Strick, a professor and chair of the Department of Science, Technology, and Society, uh, professor of Earth and Environment at Franklin and Marshall College. He's the author of Wilhelm Reich, Biologist, which is uh, published by Harvard University Press. And, you know, James Strick, I, I might just begin there. 
and say, you know, Wilhelm Reich. Well, actually, no, that, that would be getting ahead of the story. I think we need to set the stage a little bit more. So, Kevin Hinchy, I'm going to begin with you. Um, when you try to explain to somebody, maybe somebody who walks in the door on a beautiful summer day up in uh, Rangeley uh, into your museum uh, without much understanding of who this guy is, um, and they say, whose museum am I in right now? Uh, what do you say to them? Uh, well, uh, uh, some of them who come in probably have some sort of uh, uh, vague knowledge, uh, having read something locally coming in. But in answer to your question, um, I uh, I like to start really uh, at the end, uh, pretty much the way you did just now, um, and explain that this was a uh, a psychoanalyst, a psychiatrist, a research physician, and a scientist um, whose books were banned and burned. Uh, by order of federal court in America uh, in the 1950s. And that uh, what you really want to do is sort of explain what was it in uh, Reich's publications, 10 hardcover books, 11 years of his uh, published uh, research journals um, that allegedly merited this literature being uh, banned and burned. So we always find whether... People are walking into a museum or people are coming into conferences or just in in uh, uh, in terms of normal conversations. Um, that always seems to be a, a wonderful way to pull people in because in the end, um, whether they're particularly – they end up being particularly interested in his life and work, the idea of a man's books being banned and burned in America – um, during his lifetime and three years after his death um, really arouses their curiosity and makes them a little more susceptible or uh, receptive to the story. You know, James Strick, um, uh, regardless of whether a person buys into any of Reich's ideas or not, and we'll come to that, um, but whether you do or not, studying him is studying this incredible history of the fusion of the behavioral sciences and the medical sciences and the politics of Middle Europe in the 1930s and 1940s. He's racing all over uh, Middle and, and Northern Europe. Uh, he's uh, using ideas from Marxism to fuel some of his uh, scientific uh, thinking. He's uh, using... Uh, He's part of this revolution uh, of uh, sexual research that's going on in the 1930s. Uh, We've seen a little bit of that being uh, chronicled even now in in popular culture these days on the TV series Transparent. You see actually Magnus Hirschfeld, uh, another sexual researcher whose books were also uh, burned after doing a lot of research in in the liberal Weimar years. Uh, And certainly uh, Reich's shadow is hanging over this Showtime series Masters of Sex. I don't know if he's been mentioned yet, but he's Certainly, is uh, it's so much a series about the difficulties in the 1950s in America of doing sexual research, how much trouble you could get into, no matter how scientific you tried to be. So it's all over the place there. And I guess one thing I was going to ask you, James Strick, is um, as you looked at all this, what what drew you to Reich? This is he's not an easy guy to sell to a canonical scientific audience. What made you want to write about him? Yeah, well. It's worth saying a little bit about my background and what my general research is about in order to make it clear. I'm a historian of science by training. Uh, Like about half of historians of science, I was originally a scientist, in my case a microbiologist. And uh, when I retrained as a historian of science, the kind of stories that I was most interested in looking into were uh, ideas and experiments about the origin of life. 
my first book, for example, is Darwin and his chief lieutenants arguing amongst themselves for the first 20 years after the origin of species. Um, what does this theory mean about the origin of the first living thing on Earth? So when I heard about a story of a a Freudian psychoanalyst who ended up in a physiology laboratory and sort of serendipitously stumbled into origin of life experiments, it piqued my curiosity for a dozen different reasons. I mean, one wanted to know right away, what's a Freudian psychoanalyst doing in a physiology laboratory? How does he possibly end up in the middle of origin of life experiments? Um, and the more I looked into it and discovered uh, you know, the man's books were burned under official orders by an agency of the U.S. government, you really want to know what's in those books. What is this guy's research program all about? Um, what made it an interesting story to research and write about, I think not just for historians of science but for a much broader audience, is that, as you say, it's a window into – an awful lot of science and politics in the interwar period in in Europe. Um, I end my book, Wilhelm Reich, Biologist, right at the point in August 1939 when Reich takes ship and comes to the United States, um, escaping Europe essentially, you know, just ahead of the outbreak of World War II. And uh, the the eyewitness view that it gives you into not just politics, not just science, but how politics was so interfering with science in Europe in the 1920s and 30s, I think is really an extraordinary case study. Then, too, um, the experiments that uh, I referred to where Reich found himself in Origin of Life uh, unexpectedly are the experiments that led him directly to a very unorthodox theory of how cancer cells develop. And the same experiments led him to discover uh, what he considered to be uh, a previously unknown form of radiation that on further investigation, he decided the evidence suggested was a specific biological energy that some biologists had hypothesized and been looking for for some years. So since both um, his theory of what he called orgone energy and his theory of the, the origin of cancer cells are intimately related to what eventually led to his confrontation with the United States government in the late 1940s and 1950s, it seemed to me like this story would be interesting for an even more important reason. Anybody who was ever interested in whether Reich, whether there was any substance to his science, um, in contradistinction to the widespread narrative that once Reich went into the laboratory, nothing but pseudoscience resulted, would want to know about these experiments because they were foundational to the uh, issues that led him into conflict with the U.S. government. Let me grab a call here. By the way, our number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. We're live here during the afternoon, and you may also tweet us at WNPR Colin. Uh, here's Philip in Hampton with a question. Hi, Philip. Hi, hi. I've done a little bit of reading about Reich, and, and what I've been struck with is it seems that when I read him versus what's said, there's such a gross misunderstanding of his work. So I'm wondering if you could invite your guest to try to explain or give their opinions as to why they think Reich is so, you know, dramatically misunderstood. 
All right. It's sort of the $10 million question in some ways. And Kevin, uh, it, it's a question with a lot of long answers. But is there a short answer? Why was this guy demonized? As, as James Strick is saying, some of the work that he was doing, certainly in that kind of um, interwar period, as he calls it, and, and uh, as he kind of departed psychoanalysis and, and began to go into the lab, was sort of at the level of pure research. But it, it freaked people out and pissed people off. Uh, but in general, that's the story of Reich. You know, wherever he goes, he's getting on people's nerves and he's getting demonized. So what's the reason? Well, uh, no, and, and, and you're right. That is, the, that is the major question, and I appreciate the listener's question there. Um, if, you, if you start to look at the distortions uh, about Reich, which persist to this day, they actually originate um, early on during his early years as one of Freud's most promising students. He was a psychoanalyst. He was also a, a neuropsychiatrist. And... Um, it's a number of things. It's, it could be conceptual differences because he was looking into more innovative therapeutic techniques. He was also a very gifted young clinician. There were professional animosities and jealousies and things like that. And also because he became heavily involved at a certain point, really from 1927 on, um, a very outspoken uh, individual involved in left-wing politics, speaking out against the rise of fascism in both uh, in both Austria and then in Germany, where he moves to. And so a lot of these animosities and distortions um, begin back then. They incubate, they persist, and, um, and they seem to follow him wherever they go. Uh, Professor Strick alluded to sort of this mix of uh, politics and science, and in terms of what ultimately happens to him here in America, many of these distortions, many of these animosities precede him to America by uh, colleagues of his or former colleagues of his who have emigrated to America in the 1930s prior to his arrival. So when Reich arrives here and he arrives on uh, August 28th, four days before the outbreak of the war, there are already severe uh, animosities and distortions about him that are permeating the psychoanalytic, the psychiatric, and the medical professions here in America. Um, I, I'm just going to stay with you for a second here, uh, Kevin. And uh, there are like four or five phases at minimum to Reich's career, to his research, to the things he was interested in. Uh, and we probably won't have time to cover them all today. But, you know, it, the story begins, and I'm of necessity going to oversimplify, A, for the sake of time, and B, because I don't know the more nuanced version of this. But, you know, one of the ways in which he begins to confront uh, his his master, Sigmund Freud, with a slightly different version of things is, in fact, this, this notion uh, of sexual release, which he sees as a much bigger thing, uh, a thing that's... Uh, that that's holistic, that's kind of the the energistic and psychic version of what well, like a colon cleanse is today or something, that there's some way in which this is energy that can be um, harnessed to flush all kinds of things uh, out of a patient. And, and he's... He's with this in, as Freud starts turning away from the libido and more towards ego psychiatry, and, and he's with it in a way that seems to rattle even Freud a little bit. Well, I think that's accurate. Um, um, but, but what's important to remember is there was a period of time, and it went on for several decades, where Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, actually believed that the libido was not just an idea, that, but... but that it could possibly be a physical, biological energy 
that could be measure, uh, measured. And um, Reich hooked on to this, but he was not the only uh, psychoanalysis and psychiatrist um, who, who was interested in this. Now, at a certain point, Reich sort of turned away from that idea of his. But based on his clinical uh, work with patients, and Reich was uh, always considered, even by people who eventually became his detractors, to be one of the most gifted psychoanalytic and psychiatric clinicians, Um, based on his work with patients from all different kinds of backgrounds, private patients, um, uh, patients of his from the from the proletarian classes, patients he was working with in uh, in various clinics and uh, and things like that. He was convinced that the libido was in fact a real energy because that's how strong it was, and um, and so it's interesting uh, that he is really just taking a concept. Uh, that Freud himself advocated for many years and and really sticking with it based on on clinical you know on on, on clinical research with real patients but uh, you know as you said Colin um, it is one of the things um, um, that did uh, begin to cause some en- enmity between him and Freud because if you follow it to its logical conclusion and even Freud would say that Neuroses are based on sexual repression. That's not Reich's idea. That's Freud's idea. Um, But if you follow it to its logical conclusion, it has social implications because you have to consider what is causing these neuroses, what is causing the sexual repression. And when Reich becomes politically active, he's really coming out and saying we need to change certain social institutions. And that's where you really start to see the larger break happened between him and Freud because of the social implications of this. Right. He's also working on this whole uh, idea of, uh, uh, I love it, it's called sort of a, a body armor, or but yes. he calls it character panzer, uh, and, you know, this notion that we're, we're, we're holding tensions in our bodies. That And this is, and we'll talk about this a little bit in the third segment, this is certainly an idea that survived in, in lots of modifi- modified forms in, into a very, very acceptable way of thinking about things in the United States. There was a guy in the 1970s named Alexander Lowen who made a fortune writing books about this. They were bestseller books. They were just, they were boilerplate. They weren't boilerplate, right? They were just absolutely pure, purely based on, on Reich's ideas. And, yes, he, he, he had been a student of Freud's, right, uh, of, of, of Reich's. Reich's. And yes. to, the, to this day, if you, you know, hang around some yoga studios, you're going to hear some ideas that sound an awful lot like character puns or this notion right. That, right. That, that our bodies begin to defend themselves uh, against psychic trauma and that we hold these uh, tensions in there. So um, right. so not all of it's kind of uh, crazy talk, uh, not at all. And, and so James Strick, um, uh, so much of this, so much of what he did seemed to be what other people were doing. He was a sexual researcher in the Weimar years when a lot of people were sexual researchers. He was an avid Marxist at a time when a lot of people were avid Marxists. He was a guy who thought you could you, you could combine ideas of Marxist dialectical materialism with an approach to scientific research at a time when a lot of people were doing that. So once again, yeah, what, what gets him in trouble? Why? How come he's the guy getting chased out of everywhere, getting chased out of Norway, getting chased out of, you know, why is he in so much trouble compared to everybody else? It's interesting that you focus first, Colin, on the distinction that he made compared to many of the other psychoanal- psychoanalysts about how um, 
uh, really gratifying sexual experience uh, could, in fact, relieve people's neurotic symptoms. Um, he saw this in his patients, in his private patients. He also saw it in his patients at the free clinics that the Freudians staffed for the working class. And uh, when he first told his psychoanalytic colleagues about this, and I think this goes back to addressing the question, too, why is it so widespread that Reich is misunderstood? The very foundational um, approach conceptually that he took to this is nuanced, and a lot of people don't read Reich. They only read um, quick thumbnail sketches on the Internet, and they miss the important nuance that makes this thing hang together. Uh, Reich, when he first presented this idea to his psychoanalytic colleagues and said, uh, look, you know, my the, the patients I have who are severely neurotic, when they actually experience genuine sexual gratification, they get better. Their symptoms diminish dramatically. And uh, his colleagues were, for the most part, pretty skeptical. They said, come on, I've got lots of patients who have sex all the time, and they're still severely neurotic. And that prompted Reich to ask his patients in much closer detail about their sex lives. And what he discovered was that the vast majority of his colleagues were just asking his, their patients, you know, do you have sex? Or how often do you have sex? Um, and that, to them, was satisfactory data for passing judgment on these ideas. But when he asked his patients in much greater detail about their sex lives, he found that it, it was, in, in a way, you know, we all instinctively understand this, right? It wasn't about quantity. And I think the single most common misunderstanding or misapprehension or misrepresentation of Reich is that he claimed that if you just had sex all the time, it would cure everything from neurosis to cancer. And Reich was, in fact, the person who discovered that it wasn't just about quantity. He uh, framed this in a concept that he called orgastic potency. He said, what I've really found here is that if the patient has a, uh, the internal capability to let go and really allow themselves a completely gratifying sexual experience, that's what leads to diminishment of neurotic symptoms. And he was the first one to notice that it was the patients who couldn't do that who frequently became hypersexualized because they couldn't get gratification and therefore were running around screwing all over the place. And I think very few people who read Reich or who read about Reich really understand that concept of orgastic potency, that for Reich, it was not just having sex. It was the ability to experience complete discharge of the damned-up energy that meant the energy was no longer there to fuel the neurotic symptoms. And um, that's what he called orgastic potency. And it's important not just because it's foundational for everything that D Reich did afterwards. If you really don't take this concept on board, I think, It'll be very hard for you to understand or take seriously most of what Reich did because this concept is central to everything that he did afterwards. But it's also a key piece of what helps you understand why he felt moved to take this into the laboratory. Um, I mean, he was not trained as a physiologist. He had a medical degree, and he had, of course, some laboratory science background in his medical training. But he felt that, and he wasn't the only psychoanalyst who felt this way, if we can't take Freud's libido theory into the laboratory and show that you can really demonstrate 
that libido is actually a tangible, measurable force that we could study quantitatively, and we could show that in patients whose neurotic symptoms are diminishing, there's more of it freely available that we can measure, and in patients in whose neurotic symptoms are still very severe, it's bound in a way that it is not freely available for uh, work and other productive activities in life. That, that's why he felt so compelled to go into a physiology laboratory to explore this further was because he really felt it was I'm, I'm, I'm gonna the key there source of energy. James Strick, I've got to go to a break here, and, and I want to get us into that laboratory, uh, and we've already used up half the show, and there's so many things that we've got to talk about here. So I'm going to grab a break here. We'll come back. We'll talk more uh, to Kevin Hinchy and to uh, James Strick. All right, then, come on, spin. Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you. All right, we're back. We're talking about uh, the legacy of Wilhelm Reich, the complicated legacy of Wilhelm Reich, Reich with two uh, uh, people who believe that he has been misunderstood over time. Kevin Hinchy is the co-director of the Wilhelm Reich Infant Trust and operates the Wilhelm Reich Museum in Rangeley, uh, uh, Maine. Uh, it, it's uh, way, way up there uh, among some beautiful lakes. Uh, he's also a screenwriter currently working on a documentary uh, on Wilhelm Reich. Uh, and James Strick is with us, professor and chair of the Department of Science, Technology, and Society Professor uh, of Earth and Environment, Franklin and Marshall College. He's the author of Wilhelm Reich, Biologist. So, James Strick, I just want to come back to what you were saying before, because this is uh, the meat of your book, really, is this time in which Reich turns away, really, from the bones of psychoanalysis and, and gets into the bare bones of life. He really becomes interested uh, in, in maybe even trying to understand life at its cellular, cellular level and, and what might even be a theory of the origin uh, of, of life. And he winds up talking about something that he calls a bion. Now, this is something, obviously, that you've written a very long book about, and our time is much shorter. But can you give us kind of a thumbnail uh, of, uh, of what he's talking about? What is he talking about with the bion? Yeah, so uh, in some ways it is in the tradition of some other uh, work that was going on in the 1920s and 30s called cell model experiments, where people were trying to imitate the properties of very, very simple cells by putting together different combinations of chemicals um, that would produce you know, microscopic structures that had some of the properties of cellular life, but not all, and trying by this approach to understand, well, what might a chemical origin of life have been like? But Reich was also pursuing a second track of experiments. Um, he was watching already um, organized matter, you know, dead grass or moss or dead animal tissue, disintegrate um, in broth under the microscope. And he found that in both cases, he saw very similar kinds of microscopic structures produced that had really similar properties. These are the things he called bions. They were very small, about the size of a bacterial cell. But they had properties like electrical charge um, that was characteristic of a living system. And they could, under certain circumstances, be grown in culture generation after generation. So once the preparation was made, you could transfer it to sterile culture media and a culture of these exact same bions, a pure culture of just this one kind of microbe, would grow up in that sterile medium. And if you took a sample of that and transferred it again to another sterile medium, it would grow up again through many generations. And 
Reich began to think these things must be at least transitional stages between non-living and living matter if they had so many properties that were lifelike. Um, But by the time he starts to be able to grow them in culture through successive generations, he's asking himself, are these things alive? Have I stumbled here on processes by which life is created in nature out of non-living material? And uh, he's kind of going back and forth between those those two hypotheses um, at different points in the experiments. Um, But the bions are, as I said earlier, uh, important not just whether you take them seriously as experiments that had something to say about the origin of life based on where laboratory research was in the 1930s. They're also important because Reich thought when he saw a parallel process of uh, disintegration into bions in animal tissue under certain circumstances, especially if it was um, depleted of energy or oxygen-starved. And then those bions reorganized themselves into protozoa that looked almost identical to cancer cells taken in a living state from cancer patients. He began to think that these bions were a lot more important than just about the bridge between life and non-life, that it might be the disintegration of tissue inside the body of a living organism all right. into these bions that created cancer cells. All right, we're going to have to... This unorthodox we're, theory that I spoke about earlier. Right. We need to pause that here. We're just going to run out of time. And w- it would be nice to build kind of an immaculate set of bridges from one thing to another, but I, I think that's going to be tough to do. Um, Kevin Hinchy, And I should say, by the way, we're going to embed uh, on our website a link to uh, the um, Indiegogo campaign to raise funds for Thank the you. Wilhelm Reich Documentary Film Project. That's what Kevin's working on right here. That campaign runs until next Friday, uh, May 20th. But so... Um, Eventually, uh, he's trying to do these experiments in Norway. Europe is basically collapsing around him. Uh, He gets out pretty much on on metaphorically the last bus, uh, winds up in the United States. There's a lot of things to talk about there. But, I mean, we're going to just have to kind of leapfrog ahead. The thing he becomes famous for next is, in fact, this orgone energy accumulator. So sometimes called the orgone box. Um, And and once again, Kevin, I'll have you in a in a thumbnail or a nutshell, nutshell lay that lay that one out for us. Yeah. Okay. And 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 I just go uh, go back uh, very briefly to what uh, Professor uh, Professor Strick said. These uh, these experiments with bions, 1936, 1937, 1938, in his uh, laboratory in Oslo. And then in early 1939, he finds in a particular bion culture, a specific bion culture, a radiation phenomenon. And it is after discovering this radiation phenomenon that he starts using Faraday cages to really determine, to help determine, um, is this electricity? He uses other experiments. Is this radioactivity? You know, you know, what is this? And, um, and he determines that this is an energy in and of itself that is previously undiscovered, and he gives it the name of orgone energy. And when he comes to the United States, and it's just a few months after his discovery of this orgone energy in microscopic cultures in January and February of 1939, comes to America uh, at the end of August, and war breaks out a few days later, he immediately sets up a laboratory in the house that he's renting in Forest Hills to continue what he calls orgone energy research. And these Faraday cages, which are metal enclosures, uh, mesh screen or solid screen, eventually, uh, based on his observations, 
will evolve with certain different layering into what uh, he would call orgone energy accumulators, which would isolate and hold in the radiation from these various cultures he's experimenting with. And then he also discovers later on in, in the Rangeley Lakes area, about a year later in July 1940, that this same energy, as a biological energy in these cultures, he also discovers in the atmosphere. And so he discovers that these now orgone energy accumulators can also absorb and concentrate an atmospheric orgone energy. And, uh, and, and at the time, these are just small accumulators, about one cubic foot. Eventually, he will do experiments with cancer mice in these uh, small orgone accumulators. Uh, the results are rather promising. And again, these are based on his Bayan experiments, you know, back in Oslo. And because the, the, the results with cancer mice using these or, small orgone accumulators are so promising, he eventually develops larger accumulators, large enough for a person to sit in. And in early 1941, he will embark on the first of his experimental cancer treatments with, uh, with uh, individuals with terminal cancer. So um, this is one of the places he gets into trouble. Uh, and uh, so a lot of things are happening right now. We're talking about a period in the late 40s, early 50s. Uh, America was, on the one hand, incredibly distrustful uh, of outside influences, new ideas, anybody with a Marxist past. Uh, we're talking about what is sometimes referred to as the second Red Scare. That's going on. But there's also this incredible countercultural movement. So Reich winds up, uh, Kevin, with a profile in both places, right? He's, uh, you know, on the one hand, being excoriated by one journalist in particular, a woman named Mil- Mildred Brady, writing a series of articles uh, about him in, in uh, both the New Republic and Harper's, uh, that he's the uh, the leader of a new cult of sex and anarchy. He's a dangerous man. He's using these uh, devices. People don't know what they are. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he gradually gets a tremendous amount of traction that lasts for really decades with people like Norman Mailer, J.D. Salinger, Saul Bell, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac, Dwight McDonald, William S. Burroughs. Uh, you can go all the way into the 70s and supposedly Sean Connery is still using some version uh, of the Oregon energy accumulator. Uh, so if Sean Connery is using it, uh, probably ought, we all ought to as well. So both of these things are happening at once, but maybe we can talk about the first thing. He becomes an outlaw to a certain degree. I mean, these articles are written about him, uh, and um, the government gets very interested in a very negative way uh, in the work of Reich. Right. Well, you, you, you can't really separate the two threads that you've elaborated on there. And so, for example, um, this is where we start coming to the major distortions about the orgone energy accumulator, um, which starts to be, hu- be used by, by people starting in, the, in, in, in 1941. And the, the two major distortions about this are, number one, that Reich was uh, promoting it as a cancer cure, uh, and he was doing nothing of the kind. I often say to people, I will wager you any amount of money at any time if you can find anything in Reich's publications where he claims he can cure cancer whereas I could show you five or six statements where he can't. So that's the other one. In terms of all the names that you mentioned there, these writers and things like that, yes, they were admirers of Reich, but um, they, in fact, do a great disservice to, uh, to Reich because uh, individuals like them seem to um, misinterpret 
what the orgone accumulator was about, and they are partially responsible. People like Burroughs and, 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 and Kerouac and, and, and even earlier people, Bellow, that this somehow was some sort of sexual device to enhance potency, to, to, to make you have a more gratifying sexual life. Uh, that is not the case, and Reich never made those claims for it. So if it's not a sex box and it's not a cure cancer box, what is it? It is an experimental, scientific, and medical tool. And uh, let's go to the medical tool first. Um, Reich was experimenting with uh, cancer patients, and yes, he did get promising results by people using the orgone accumulator. Promising results. That didn't mean it was cancer. And Reich published all of these results in various case histories, which he compiled into a book in 1948 called the cancer biopathy. Um, but it also started to get this reputation. This is some sort of, it's a, it's a cancer cure. It's a sex box. It's this, that. And Mildred Brady, uh, who you referenced, who was a freelance writer, is really one of the first to put these kinds of distortions, to, 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 to really uh, put them in a concise form in an article, in, uh, uh, in May of 1947 in New Republic magazine, in which he essentially calls upon the authorities, whether it's psychoanalytic authorities or others, uh, because that was what his background is, to, to, to really look into this man. And she is the one who first puts into print, perhaps what other people were thinking, but she puts into print that the orgone accumulator can be used to enhance orgastic potency. And... Uh, and then she also talks about some of his, uh, in a more basic way, about his cancer research. This article comes to the attention somehow of a physician uh, who is on a medical advisory board of the Federal Trade Commission, which uh, uh, which oversees uh, uh, of, of various uh, consumer things. And um, when he reads that Reich is in fact renting out these orgone accumulators, so patients can use them at home, which Reich thought would be a wonderful way for people to, you know, really um, come up with new information about these devices. Um, this doctor at the Fe Federal Trade Commission passes this article on to someone at the Food and Drug Administration and basically says, this is something you might want to look into. Okay, I'm going to pause you right there because I just, uh, once again, we're, I'm fighting a clock here. The show's like almost over at this point. So, um, James Strick, um, we live in an era where there's a, a very, very determined approach to, uh, to divide things up between science and pseudoscience. Reich is always put in the category of pseudoscience. Whenever we do a show about anything that could be described as woo-woo, I know certain columns in magazines I'm going to wind up in. Here's McEnroe again uh, parading pseudoscience around. But you got Harvard University Press uh, to, to publish a book about Reich. What, how did you do that? What was the basis for doing it? Why was Harvard University Press willing to, to publish a book uh, on Reich, given the fact that he died in prison for reasons that Kevin is already setting up? Uh, this is a guy who's been reviled in a lot of ways as a pseudoscientist. Most of the ideas we're talking about are not even remotely canonical. So, so first of all, why write a book about him and, and and how did you get Harvard to publish it? Um, let me just say one thing before taking on your question directly. Um, the business about uh, Reich claiming the orgone energy accumulator was a cancer cure, that's one of the most um, direct ways to find out whether anybody has ever actually read anything by Reich. 
because um, his book, The Cancer Biopathy, where he describes the experiments that he did on human cancer patients, reports very straightforwardly that every single one of the patients died. Every single one of the patients that came to him as a last-ditch patient who had been declared hopeless, etc., and was willing to try his experimental therapy because they had no other options left, all of them died, and Reich is very clear about that. Now, how one can take that and read it as Reich claiming that the orgone energy accumulator is a cure for cancer, um, I think it can only pass if somebody hasn't ever bothered to read Reich. Uh, the Food and Drug Administration, when they successfully prosecuted Reich, declared that he made those claims, but they declared it based on Brady's articles, not based on anything that Reich ever put into print himself. So, you know, but once the Food and Drug Administration declares that that was what Reich said, and Reich is the loser, so they're going to get a lot more publicity for their side of the story than he is, the dominant narrative becomes that Reich was a pseudoscientist and that this was a claimed cancer cure that was bogus. Um, how do you ever overcome a dominant I've got narrative? To, I've, I've got to jump in here because we are we are going to be out of time in the end of the uh, final segment here. So and we're going to jump in here. We're going to take a break. We'll come back with more of this conversation. Church says that's exactly what you get. He did 10 years in anger, Nietzsche and William Reich. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Stephanie Reef and Ross Levin, whose final day is today. Thank you so much for your help, Ross. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Anna Freud. For show pages, news, and videos of the entire Here and Now staff packed into one orgone box, go to our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, the nose goes to the movies. And now, back to Colin. I still dream of organone. I wake up crying. All right, uh, Kevin Hinchy. That's a song called Cloudbusters by uh, Kate Bush. Uh, it's about yet another phase of Wilhelm Reich. As he's getting a, a little bit uh, towards the end of his life um, and, and some of the uh, recriminations against him uh, are piling up, he, he maybe gets a little bit more eccentric. And he does have this idea of the Cloudbuster, which some people describe as an inside-out uh, orgone. I, I should say musically, there's all ki kinds of stuff. It's another way that he's celebrated in culture. Those of you who are uh, still lamenting the death of the famous bassist Lemmy should check out the Ho Hawkwind sound, a song called uh, Orgone Accumulator. There's a Patti Smith song that's based on Peter Reich, uh, Wilhelm's son, and the two of them uh, uh, having a, a reunion and a UFO or something. But, but um, So Cloudbusters really refers to a thing that, that Reich uh, was trying to do. Explain that one for us. Yeah, and um, the, the, the Cloudbuster... Um, it doesn't have anything to do with the orgone accumulator except that some of the energetic principles are the same. Um, um, but this, these were experiments that Reich was doing starting in 1952, and they grew out of um, some atmospheric work he was doing, and he actually created a, uh, 
uh, a instrument called a cloud buster, which would um, could draw, which grounded in water could uh, affect the energy, the orgone energy potential in the atmosphere. And uh, as with all of his work, as as Professor Strick would. Uh, um, uh, 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 what attests to is um, we have decades of Wright's notebooks and uh, in addition to his published work. And in fact, um, there are numerous documented cases of successful experiments where he was able to alter the, uh, the orgone energy potential in the atmosphere and bring about increased moisture and in some cases even rain. And, so, and, that, and that goes from around 1952 to 1956, and then Wright gets absorbed with all kinds of legal difficulties. So about four years. Yeah. So there may be a little bit of a post-hoc, Proctor hoc question here about that, uh, but he did at least persuade some blueberry farmers uh, that, he could, yes. uh, uh, that he could literally make it rain, uh, as they say. And so, I interviewed one of them for the documentary film, uh, yeah. or, or the son of one of them who was there when it happened. Yeah. So, James Strick, at this point, though, we really are beginning to get, I mean, if, in fact, Reich wasn't out on a limb with some of his other stuff, he's getting further out on a limb here. Some of it may be the product of the persecution that he's been going through, and he does get interested in UFOs. I mean, there seems to be a a certain point. Some people might say it starts way earlier than what we're talking about when Reich becomes his own worst enemy. Well, people have expressed a lot of opinions about that, and Unfortunately, most of them seem to be pure opinion. I mean, just about everybody that you talk to who knows something about Reich is is absolutely certain that he went crazy at some point. And when you ask them when it is, it's always the point at which he started to come up with ideas that they didn't like anymore. The psychoanalysts were sure that the time that when he went crazy was either when he became a Marxist or if they were left-wing psychoanalysts, some of them, when he went into a laboratory. It's, you know, it's... Um, it's hard to judge uh, Reich's sanity at the remove that we're at. I think that one of the reasons why Harvard University Press, to go back to your earlier question, was interested in publishing the book that I was uh, suggesting was that I said, uh, you know, rather than base any of this on opinion, it's a really exciting possibility since Reich's archives have opened to scholars since the fall of 2007 Uh, Why don't I go in there and look at his laboratory notebooks, at least on the set of microbiology experiments that I'm sure I'll understand the best because of my microbiology training, and why don't I try to form an opinion based on what's going on day-to-day in his laboratory as recorded in those notebooks about whether this really was pseudoscience or not? Um, You know, it's, it's not hard to tell if notebooks look fabricated. And uh, the notebooks that I found pretty much correspond day by day with the sequence of development of the experiments that Reich later reported in his published reports. So I think, I mean, one of the main conclusions of my book is that one could disagree with Reich about how to interpret what he saw in his, his experiments. I think rational people could offer possibly alternative interpretations, especially based on new scientific ideas in biology. But um, we can dismiss this uh, narrative of pseudoscience and say at least that's a fruitless discussion. Now it would probably be a lot more fruitful discussion to focus on, well, what do these things mean? If All it's right, clear gonna... from the laboratory notebooks that he saw what he says he saw, 
Now let's have an interesting discussion about what it actually means. I'm going to stop you there. Just we are almost out of time here. So, uh, Kevin, one thing that uh, we didn't do today, just because he wasn't available, uh, was Dr. Christopher Turner, who has written a biography of Reich that that is less laudatory than anything that you are probably going to make in your film or 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 what James Strick uh, would write uh, in, in his book, and, and and making the argument that really Reich, you know, was a pretty screwed up guy. Uh, that his daughter, uh, a psychoanalyst herself or a psycho therapist herself said, you know, she thought he was sexually abused as a child. That led to some of his disorders that other people like Ernest Jones, uh, you know, thought he was mentally ill, that that he had a turbulent, li- turbulent life that caused him a lot of his problems, uh, had affairs with some of his patients and, and very turbulent marriages and relationships. So, I mean, how, how much of that's fair? The, a lot of the attacks on Reich are there was something wrong with this guy and there was something wrong, wrong with this guy from Jump Street. I, uh, I I think a lot of this is unfair. I've had uh, I had uh, years ago considerable contact with Christopher Turner. I I won't say too much. Um, I think he proceeded in very a lot of dishonest ways in talking to people and sort of disguising his agenda. And the fact that he would publish a book called Adventures in the Orgasmatron, uh, Orgasmatron, I think pretty much tells you everything about his agenda. And so I think it's uh, I think it's always been unfair for people. Uh, to really go through and cherry-pick all these various things. I think you could probably do that with any number of people. Um, and, it, and uh, you know, uh, so that's about all I, I want to say about that. All right. Well, that's good because that's all we have time for. <laughs> so, uh, But uh, obviously, good luck with the biography. And if people are traveling in northern Maine this summer, they might want to stop at the Wilhelm Reich Museum uh, in Rangeley, Maine, up there by the lakes. As I say, the uh, Indiegogo link for the documentary will be up on our website as part of this show page. Thanks to everybody who helped out today, and certainly thanks to James Strick, author of Wilhelm Reich Biologist, and Kevin uh, Hinchy, uh, who is doing this uh, bio, this, uh, bio documentary uh, of Reich. And thanks to Betsy Kaplan for producing. And I think this is the Hawkwind tune, right? So you put it, yeah, and then you push, yep, and then you pull, mm-hmm. and that's what it's all about. Yep, the hokey pokey has always been what it's all about. Is that what they call it? Mm, no.